Hello. <laughs> and welcome to episode 55 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David, and with me are the NCP crew. Richard. What's this episode again? 55. Alright, 55, my favourite number. Luke. You know, after all the excitement, it's a bit of a letdown now. <laughs> but <laughs> it's 55! There's still excitement to come. And Crystal. 55 makes me think of rocking around the clock. Alright. I like that. It could be worse than Take, you think about. It takes me back to our 50s episode where we travelled through time for too damn long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee. Uh, so, for this sexy episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know why the episode's so sexy. I don't know what's going on. The ex- episode. I, I just took my insulin, so it's gone to my head. I've also got the insulin rush. You're not meant to inject it into your head. That's, good. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, for this episode, we have a return of our five minute popcorn junkies uh, on same time next year, Romper Stomper, and a combined five minute popcorn junkie, which will be a ten minute popcorn junkie. Ooh! Because you demanded it. Pacific Rim. And thanks to Oz Comic Con Melbourne, we'll also have three interviews. I attended Oz Comic Con, as, as visitors to the website will know, and uh, I was very grateful to be able to interview uh, Phil Eminez, Freddie Williams II, and Paul Mason. And William Shatner? No, I didn't get to interview William Shatner, I'm afraid. Did anybody get to interview William Shatner? Uh, he was on Sunrise or the 7.30 no, report. Everyone, everyone's on Sunrise. Whatever that so. crappy show is, the 7, AM, 7 p.m. report or something. I don't know. Who the gets? Project. The Project, yes. Eh? I don't even know the name. Cause that must have been very exciting for <laughs> The Project. <laughs> Not as exciting as their interview with Brad Pitt, though. Did you see that? No. That was hilarious. It's <laughs> Husey, seriously, man crush bad. He was, he practically was drawling. It, okay. it was awesome to see. Um, anyway, moving on. And the usual uh, excitement of the coming soon and extra stuff. Actually, no, there's no extra stuff. I lied. Coming soon is the end of it. Don't lie um, to the listeners. I don't know. Why am I lying to our audience? But wait a second. Didn't we have a competition? Don't we need to announce a winner of a competition? That is correct! So, we but are... wait! There's more! <laughs> the and for some reason, the host doesn't realise it! No, no, I remember that. I was just going for comedic effect. No, I lied. I lied again. I had no idea. I forgot. Uh, you also, we also announced the winner of our competition from our previous episode, uh, the, where we covered Superman, and uh, we have a winner of uh, the trades, Red Sun and All-Star Superman. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. Let's move on to our five-minute popcorn junkies. Starting with Crystal and same time next year. Nineteen seventy-eight, same time next year, starring Ellen Alder and Ellen Burns. Bur- Bur- I, I've Burstyn. just said. Did I say Ellen Alder and Alan Burston? <laughs> <laughs> Red leather, yellow leather. <laughs> Alan Alder, Alan Burston. Alan's the man and Ellen's the girl. <laughs> Luckily no one was called Aaron, we'd be really confused. <laughs> In joke. <laughs> oh dear. This is a romantic comedy slash drama, so not our usual nerd culture podcast fair, but we thought we'd give it a shot anyway. Uh, I watched it for the first time about a year ago, maybe more. It was just it was on one evening on the TV and I flipped over and it was there it was and kept watching it. Let me just say I do not condone infidelity. <laughs> just a little disclaimer out of the way there. Okay. 
So we can all, you know, sign relief now. Sign relief. Um, I'm not one that should be sign relief. I'm not one married to her. <laughs> this movie star- This movie starts out, unfortunately, with a, a montage, which is... Well, at first I thought it was unfortunate. But the un- only unfortunate thing about the montage, really, is the song. It starts out lovely, like your, your nice 70s movie, so you get into the mood song, and then the Johnny Mathers vocals start. don't even know your name but I'm hoping all the same this is more than just a simple hello and the unfortunate thing about this is this, re- this is repeated as the years move on five film. times <laughs> the montages are great there's they flash up images of the part when you pick the images you know that's great but the song Paul McCartney had actually written a song for this which wasn't used should have gone with that one. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but they should have gone with that one. Mall of Kintyre? What Shouldn't I, have gone with that one. <laughs> what I liked about this movie is is you've got uh, George, who's played by Alan Alder, and Doris, who's played by Alan Burston. Why did they get two people with such similar names? They are at a beachside retreat. They're sitting alone in a restaurant, which is in clearly what is the off-season, separately. And the and so you watch the initial montage, they meet, they get talking, they go back to his beachside house hut thing. Anyway, the dialogue doesn't actually start till the next morning, but that's actually when the story starts to get interesting. So what happens is George goes up there every year to meet a client, because he's a CPA. It's a special client, so he goes all the way out there to do the books for this client. And Ellen goes out there every year while her husband and kids go off to the mother-in-law. The mother-in-law doesn't like her because she got pregnant before she got married, even though the husband actually did have something to do with that. She just just doesn't like poor old Doris. (laughs) So Doris goes to a nearby convent retreat every year, but um, after this year it turns out that they all go back every year to meet each other. So once every year they, they, they meet up and over the over the 26 years, you don't get to see every 26 years, It's they, they sort of jump in spaces of five, six years or something like that, um, you get to watch this relationship progress. Um, you, you sort of see all the peaks and troughs of any sort of relationship. And the interesting thing is you also see how their characters progress. Doris progresses from this... Midwestern American housewife to someone who wants to educate herself better. She finishes high school, she turns into a hippie, and then she can, you know, becomes a businesswoman. Whereas George, uh, he's a bit more free-spirited, and then he becomes stuffy through his own personal tragedy and his politics change, and then he goes into analysis. It's just quite an interesting sort of little journey. You sort of you sort of look at them and you think if they happen to have met before the both of them had got gotten married and they had established sort of families in their little social circles and whatnot, they would have become a, a couple, the ideal couple, because they can talk to each other. They're honest. They talk about anything and everything. They're the best of friends, and it's really the best way to start a relationship, in my opinion. So that's really that's the movie in a nutshell. Uh, not the best movie. I've ever seen, but far cry from the worst movie I've ever seen. I'll give it. I'll give it three looks. Cool. So what you're saying well, is, is that this movie is actually destroying the sanctity of marriage, or something. 
I think it's 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 a product of its era that they they meet in the very early fifties and 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 then that sort of social structure it's very hard to break away from your established family. I'm not condoning it. That's just how it is. Yeah, I had I had a serious problem with the morals of this film right throughout. No, I mean, I did I, I did quite enjoy it mainly because the performances are excellent. Um, but the actual, the morals of it, I mean, the two people they, they're quite clearly in love, yet they stay with their respective partners out of mm. out of also love and respect and all that sort of stuff. It just doesn't wash with me at all. Yeah. It's, well, George's character is clearly clearly guilt written, and, and and as as Doris is as well. But it's interesting that she said to him, why are you acting so guilty? Do you think if you act so guilty that makes you a nice guy? Yeah. <laughs> is there actually any stress on the uh, their marriages and relationships because of this relationship that they've got? Not necessarily because of this relationship, no. because it's kept secret, but there is a bit of a stress on Doris's, which actually George fixes. Yeah, they're in love, mm. but they're also in love with their other partners as well. So. I think the important thing in this film is... Their friendship and the, the exploration of themselves as people. Mm. What was quite funny is uh, watching them age Alan Alder, because we know what he looks like now. He actually is around that age, but uh, sort of uh, trying to age this, this young, young young man to, to look older was, was quite amusing. It doesn't work. And it doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> That's cool. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that, Crystal. You're welcome. Okay, next up is myself with Australian drama Romper Stomper. Okay, Romper Stomper is written and directed by Jeffrey Wright. Uh, it stars uh, a very young Russell Crowe, uh, Daniel Pollock, and Jacqueline McKenzie, as well as a bunch of other people. Um, it deals with a group of skinheads uh, led by Russell Crowe's character Hando um, and his loyal offsider Davy, played by Daniel Pollock, and their desire to rid. Footscray, their local neighbourhood of what they affectionately called the Gooks, uh, who, but the, who are the Vietnamese who are uh, coming in and sort of buying businesses and stuff like that. Affectionately. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it's because I just despise that word as racism, just disgusted. Anyway, so um, I decided to cover this film because uh, I wanted to get a bit more Australian content uh, on the show uh, and also because. I've just heard so many good things. It's, strangely enough, I actually haven't seen this film before, which is bizarre. Um, I, I've only seen like the first five minutes of it. I gotta say the the number one uh, main draw of this film is the acting. Um, it is unbelievably good, especially from uh, Daniel Pollock, um, who didn't really have all that much experience before this film. He was in a couple of other Australian films, including My Beloved Proof. But this is uh, the absolute highlight of his career, and unfortunately also the last film of his career. Um, he was uh, a heroin addict in real life, and um, he had a bit, of a bit of a rough time, and this film was basically all that was keeping him going, really, this and his relationship with Jacqueline McKenzie. So, and he actually took his life once filming was completed. Um, and it's a damn shame, because his performance in this is mesmerising every time he's on screen. He doesn't even speak for the first half of the film. And uh, he just it emotes all through his eyes. It's just amazing, um, and acts Russell Crowe off the screen, uh, which, which is quite surprising because you know, I mean, Russell Crowe mm. obviously dominates every film the, he's in. Um, itself. Yeah, especially this. Um, he's it's an excellent performance. Um, uh, the only real letdown to this to this I would say is the story is is just quite pedestrian. I mean, it's not terrible. It's it's, it's nothing all that amazing. I mean, I would have liked a bit more. Uh, a bit more insight into the people 
in the film and, and their motivations other than just racism. I mean, it's I mean, there's there is one particular scene where um, Hando recites uh, reads out some of Mein Kampf um, to uh, Jacqueline McKenzie's character Gabe, and I guess that that was pretty much that was the scene that I was waiting for to happen in order to sort of find out why Hando does what he does. Um, but it's never really touched on from there. So and, and then towards the end of the film, Hando just turns into sort of your typical thug, you know, bra brainless thug. You know, and it sort of it sort of ends the way it ends. I don't want to ruin the ending because actually it's it's quite powerful, but it could have been more powerful if I'd known a bit more about Hando's character. Um, and once again, the the, the biggest the, the the biggest thing about the ending is Daniel Pollock's performance. Just it's just amazing. Yeah, the soundtrack uh, is is much lauded as well. It's it's really it's really quite good. Um, some of the cinematography is also excellent, especially the opening the opening shot of what's meant to be uh, Footscray Station, but is actually Richmond Station. Brilliant stuff, but like I said, let down by lack of insight on the characters and very very pedestrian story. Um, I'll give this. Three out of five looks. I think this film was missing an old mother Hando character. He <laughs> needed someone saying, oh, you know, he, he's a good boy at heart. <laughs> Come in here, Hando, and sit down and have a cup of tea. And, and what, what are you doing messing around with those fellows? They're no good for you. Well, don't you sort of get that with Davy's character, Davy's grandmother? Oh, to be honest, I really didn't pay much attention to the film. <laughs> well, say, really, that is I was reading the book. It's, it's interesting. I've, I've not actually seen it myself, but I remember the um, the the furor at the time of its release. You know, a lot of people were objecting to um, not just the racism, but also the violence in the film as well. Mm. It's pretty there's violent. No, it's, it's ridiculously violent, but there's nothing over the top about it. That's I mean, there's, yeah. there's no more violence also, that you'd get from G.I. Joe retaliation, which I also but, watched yesterday. But in the context of the time in which this was released, which yeah. was the mid-90s, mm. uh, Australian film, we didn't really do films like this. Yeah, it's very realistic. And it's, not, it's some, no, no more violent Mad Max. Yeah. Mm. But the thing is, the thing for me was that the, the furor about it I thought was ridiculous because I mean Hando is not presented as a likable character or no. a sympathetic character no. or a relatable character. Mm. He's presented as exactly what he is, a racist scumbag. Yeah. And the fact is that um you know th there was a this was made at a period where you know the neo-Nazis were actually quite prevalent, mm. you know, in in inner city Melbourne. And this movie I think just just captures the the feel of that and what was happening at that time. Moving on to Richo and Luke, Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim is um, Guillermo del Toro's uh, latest um, uh, fantasy blockbuster. It's a uh, film that pretty much sells what it advertises. Uh, the story is the, the plot is basically simple. Giant monsters from, uh, from another dimension have started to come through um, this rift under the Pacific Ocean and are now invading, now invading Earth. And our solution to this problem is generally pretty simple. It plays two people into giant robots to go off and fight them. At first, the, um, the general public is behind this idea and really supportive. However, things due to uh, mechanical breakdowns and failures between um, the two-man teams themselves, including um, one such incident involving our main character played by Charlie Hunnam, the Jaegers, um, which is what the robots are called, um, have started to lose popularity and, more importantly, funding. To the point where um, the United Nations is actually going to pull the plug on the Jaeger program leading Marshall Pentecost, played by the great Idris Elba, um, to come up with one last-ditch effort to destroy the rift, the breach that the, that the creatures come through before the Jaeger program is shut down. That's the plot in a nutshell. Re really, what it comes down to is big monsters versus big robots. Hmm. 
and they are big. I yep. mean, that's, <laughs> there's some very, very cool fights. It's a very testosterone-driven film, this yes. one. There's lots of big fights with big monsters and big robots, which mm. is a lot of fun. Um, look, just, just briefly, I will go over a couple of negatives about the film before I get on to the positives. Um, my first one is that uh, Charlie Hunnam's character... It comes from a very, very cliched American movie mold. He's the, you know, the former soldier whose, you know, brother has died. And, you know, so therefore he feels that he needs to redeem his brother's death. And, you know, so, you know, he reluctantly joins this program and, um, you know, comes back. And it's effectively the exact same character as Sam Worthington's character in Avatar. My problem with that is because of that, Charlie Hunnam's character is actually the least interesting character in the film. I mean, it doesn't help that the redemption story is actually not followed through on, but you don't no, really get a sense no. of the relationship between him and his brother. Um, yeah. This, the film suffers because of that, because they spend mm. quite a lot of time at the start trying to get trying to set up Charlie Hunnam's character. Yeah. Um, but then it focuses quite st- shifts swiftly onto um, his relationship with uh, Mako, played by Rinko Takeguchi, I think her name is. Nicely uh, done. Um... And this is the thing. Uh, it's actually Marco. Yeah, Marco. Marco is a far more interesting character. Mm. She has a really fascinating story. Her parents were killed by monsters that um, attacked Tokyo. And sh- during the attack, she was found by um, Idris Elba's character, who at that point was um, one of the Jaeger pilots. And he kind of um, raised her and helped bring her up through the ranks of the Jaeger program. But is also protective of her and doesn't actually want her becoming a Jaeger pilot, even though we find out pretty quickly that she's better than most of the guys that are actually in the Jaeger program. Mm. So she, she's actually a, a, a much more interesting character with a much better and stronger motivation that is played out more in the film. Mm. And honestly... I would have made her the main character because yeah. she's far more interesting than Charlie Hunnam's character. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so I must admit that that was probably my, my first problem with the film. My second one was there's a, uh, there's a few moments in this movie where they go into um, the standard, you know, chest thumping, you know, we're the best kind of thing that you mm. see in a lot of American action films. And it's a little bit too much of a Top Gun. Thing. There is. Yeah, there is a little um, bit of that. You know, young hotshots. Facing off each other, thinking that they're the best. You know, the macho, the macho posing, and at times it does does get into the stuff that you really want to see, which is not you know, um, young hot shots beating each other up, but you know, giant robots beating up giant monsters. Which brings us to the good stuff. Honestly, this movie is awesome when it comes to giant robots fighting giant monsters. Um, the fight scenes are magnificently uh, created. The special effects are brilliant. Guillermo del Toro is an amazing director and he manages to capture those fights beautifully. Um, I would love for um, them to sit down Michael Bay when he's making another Transformers film and show him that this is how you do a fight properly mm. when you've got giant things fighting one another. Um, or maybe even, you know, the makers of the new Godzilla film. I hope they've learned a bit from this because the action sequences are fantastic mm. um, and you really get into it. Like, it's a really exciting film. Mm. You know, yeah, despite the chest thumping, you do kind of get a bit of a, hell yeah, here come the big robots, let's go. You know, there's there, all, all the sort of excitement that you love from old Godzilla movies is very much beautifully captured in this Um the production design, uh, the mm. designs of the robots is fantastic. They are all very distinct. Um, and the great thing about it is is that the robots that you see, the Jaegers that you see, are all different 
models from different time periods. And so you can actually see they've done quite a lot of work in showing you the progression in the technology of these robots and also in showing you the functionality of them. Mm. Like you can see the moving parts on these robots. Um, the monsters are all truly alien you know they're they're huge they're monstrous their designs are wonderfully bizarre and you know and it's just the production design is fantastic Mm. um as i said guillermo del toro's direction is brilliant he manages to balance out the right level of character work Mm. with the right level of action yeah you know so that neither distracts too much from the other Mm. and so you get a good balance yeah for a good popcorn movie um i think it finds that balance really well yeah it's a, of, it's a lot of get going, and there's a lot of exposition right at the start to explain where it, it would have been better to show what happened to Mako to get the film, Marco, uh, Marco sorry, to get the film um, into it. But once you once you accept the sort of the ludicrousness of it, it is actually quite a fun film. So I would give this three and a half, Luke's. Um, probably didn't enjoy it anywhere near as much as you did. It, uh, like I said, a lot of fun. It has it has a lot of flaws, but ultimately, um, you know. It sells what it advertises. Yeah. It, it doesn't make any promises apart from this yeah. is just about giant robots fighting giant monsters, and I appreciated that. So I give it I give it two and a half. Okay, that was awesome. Thank you very much, everybody. Uh, let's move on to the interviews. Okay, so as I, as I said at the start, uh, I was I attended um, OzComicCon Melbourne, uh, this year's OzComicCon Melbourne, and I just have to say just a huge thank you to uh, Hub Productions for putting on such a magnificent show. I mean... Uh, I was a tad critical of last year's effort, and uh, I'm, I'm unashamed to say that it was it wasn't the best. Um, actually, it was pretty damn bad. But uh, this year absolutely blew me away in how I mean, one, it was in the beautiful old exhibition buildings, which is amazing, and uh, it was it was well put together. Uh, excellent array of guests. There was plenty to do and see. The food was excellent. There was no huge lines. It was just magnificent from start to finish and is basically it's now the benchmark of how conventions in melbourne should go um it was magnificent stuff and uh, so also thanks to blue planet uh for organizing some interviews for me i had some interviews on the friday before the show uh with bill farmer and uh, phil Eminez, and uh it was magnificent and i also managed to get some interviews at the show uh with nicholas scott freddie williams the second and paul mason um it was it was great. It was just. It was a great, great show. And I even, I even got some. Uh, I got some sketches as well, which is, uh, which was awesome. So check out the website to uh, check out some photos that I took of the actual sketches themselves. Magnificent stuff. Um, so first up, first interview I got is uh, Phil Jimenez. Um It was an absolute pleasure to talk to him. It was, an, it was just a legend. Um, and uh, I would jump at the chance to talk to him again. Um, it was awesome. Uh, the, an awesome moment was when I was down in the foyer of the hotel waiting for my interview time and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there I'm reading comics on my iPad and this guy sits next to me so he leans there and he's like hey um can I just ask uh, what's it like reading comics on your iPad how do you find it and I turn and I turn around and it's Phil Eminence so I was like holy crap <laughs> I, was like, I was like what do I say and it was awesome we just uh, started chatting and you know he was just he was very approachable and, and very friendly and uh, and then we later on had the interview itself and just lovely lovely guy so here we go. Without further ado, enough from me, Phil Jimenez. This is David. I'm here with is it is it Jimenez? Jimenez. Jimenez. Yes. Jimenez. Spanish. Spanish. Okay. Because uh, it's like a long running joke in our podcast that we can't spell, we can't pronounce anyone's name. <laughs> Nobody so, can pronounce my name. That's insane. So, so you heard it here first. That's exactly how it's meant to be said. I'm not going to try and repeat Jimenez. it. Jimenez. Jimenez. Um, 
Welcome to Australia. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure having you here. Lovely um, being here. Third time. Third time. Yes. Oh, this is that's amazing. Yes, I'm it's actually like, very excited. You actually get a chance to see you. See I, yes. Around. So I've been to. Um, it doesn't matter. I'll tell you. I'll tell you later. <laughs> <But> later. <laughs> we'll get to the interesting stuff. Um, okay, so you are of course a writer artist, magnificent art. Um, one oh, of, thank you. One of my favorite artists. Is you have a very uh, just a classic, clean style that just translates out to anything. Mostly, probably most famous for your run on uh, Wonder Woman uh, from 2000-2003, writer artist, as well as, of course, um, uh, New X-Men and the Invisibles. Um, Amazing stuff. uh, Tomorrow, I I didn't know you could get signed here, but tomorrow I'll have my New X-Men omnibus. Perfect. I'll be lugging around for you to sign. Um, Be careful of your back. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. And, of course, Infinite Crisis. So, can you you tell me, what sort of got you interested in um, Art. Art. So, uh, I got interested in art, um, and it's sort of a way a lot of young kids do, uh, dinosaurs. When I was a kid, and I was three, I was fascinated by dinosaurs, and um, I couldn't draw enough of them. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, so I would go to the Natural History Museum there in La Brea Tar Pits, and was just mesmerized by extinct animals. Um, the Flintstones was a favorite cartoon of mine, because of course there were dinosaurs, and I actually, uh, when I was quite young, believed I would end up in museum exhibition and design. Awesome. I wanted to design dioramas. I wanted to work with animatronic animals. That was my goal. And That's cool. It sort of still is. Yep. Um, I got into comic books through TV. Mm-hmm. So I got into comic book characters via cartoons and TV shows. Mm-hmm. The, the repeats of the Batman cartoon, the Linda Carter Wonder Woman TV show, the Super Friends, um, the Sid and Marty Croft adventure shows. So I'm definitely a child, a product of the 70s and 80s. Yeah. It was through Marvel Comics Star Wars that I actually got into comic book reading because um, uh, I'm such a Star Wars fan and I wanted more. And so right after Empire Strikes Back, I started reading the Star Wars comic, just desperate to fill the Star Wars yep. void until yep. Return of the Jedi. And through the Marvel Comics Star Wars, I found X-Men, and which changed my life forever. Yep. So that's how I got into comics. Yep. Um, I... I Throughout that entire time, though, I was drawing, and so I drew every day all the time. I was a latchkey kid by myself a lot, so I would entertain myself um, with stories. Often I would watch a TV movie or cartoon and then draw it the next day on whatever loose-leaf paper that I had. I actually created a contraption with um, paper towel rolls in a box, and I would literally make these TV shows um, sort of wrapping. Yes. Um, because I was so interested in sequential art and moving stories. So I always made art um, and then started making comic book art in high school, mimicking the comic books that I was reading at the time. And then, of course, you went to art school? I went to art school, yes. I was self-taught and pretty darn good, I have to say. Uh, I had a really strong instinct for sequential storytelling, Uh telling stories picture to picture. I was not a great anatomist. So I moved from Los Angeles to New York City to go to the School of Visual Arts and uh, took two years of art school training which changed my life forever um, and then started working for DC Comics uh, the summer after my sophomore year at university um, and now I actually teach at SVA yeah so you've actually since since been back to teach yes. um, so you've taught, taught at SVA you also have taught at the LGBT center yes uh, and I my, the, I also my, the thing that I'm actually really proud of now is I work with the uh, Smithsonian Institute's Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum their mentor program so I mentor teens uh, in a design challenge every year, which has been really extraordinary. Awesome. Um, yeah, so uh, 
I'd like to say I give back. I learned a lot from my teachers and mentors, an extraordinary amount. Uh, I wouldn't be here without them. Um, And so I just like to sort of give their lessons and pass them on in my own little way. That's awesome. And so uh, with uh, Wonder Woman, you also did writing as well. So, and also with your creator-owned series, yes. Otherworld. Yes. Um, so what sort of, what, so you've explained your love for drawing. What sort of moved you into the, to the writing side? Um, I have a mixed bag with writing. I write primarily because when other writers who I think are better at their jobs aren't writing me anything I want to draw. Um, Or when I think I have a very specific vision for something. So I think the most successful thing I've ever written was Tempest, primarily because it was earnest, it was passionate, and it was just me and my editor. Wonder Woman was a very strange experience. There are many stories about it online, because there was editorial interference from beginning to end, which I still, 10, 12 years later, think I need therapy over, because I don't... (laughs) In hindsight, the interference I faced, issue after issue after issue, I still don't understand. Yeah. Um, it, uh, for whatever whatever happened, those couple of years happened, and yeah. that's the way it goes. Um, are, you but, still, are you still proud of the run, though? I mean, it's, uh, I, it's, it's, it's hard a good to run. Be, it's a fine run. Yeah. It could have been a lot better. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I will always be frustrated by. When I look at those decisions that I know weren't mine, yeah. that were I had to concede because I was young and... I didn't know how to barter, and because the executive editor at the time and I, we didn't get along, um, and so I just made, so many of those stories were stretched out or condensed or altered in ways I just never naturally would have done, but I had to to fit the needs of a crossover or um, the events of 9-11, say. Um, So Pride is not, I'm happy, I will always be thrilled to be associated with Wonder Woman, and I think people that read it can tell when it was me for yeah. example the day in the life story wonder woman was still considered like Excellent. one of her classics and yeah. that was just me and joe kelly writing wonder woman like writing and drawing wonder woman that was that was just us there was great. and so pardon me i do take pride in that i would love one more shot at that character i don't know if i'll ever get it but yeah. i think it would be fun now knowing what i do both creatively and editorially and personally to just have one last shot at wonder woman yeah. and if you don't at least the encyclopedia Right. And another thing, which, yeah, so um, the encyclopedia I wrote with John Wells, which was just, it, the, the, the volume of research for that book, it took, that book was supposed to be done in 18 months, and it took me almost two years, because I was doing other work on the side, and I had to reread the entire run, plus Justice Leagues, and Brave and the Bolds, and all these other appearances, and then um, sift through all these various iterations of her... Um, and that's a whole other conversation about <laughs> how I believe there are there's not Wonder Woman, one Wonder Woman, but there are at least three of them. Right. And so different people have different their favorite. Actually, there are four with the Linda Carter. Linda Carter. I was going to say well, Linda yeah, yeah. one of them. Uh, but in comics, <laughs> there are about three yeah. um, distinct versions. And so that was just. I'm also really happy to be attached to that book. But again, we had to call and help John Wells because I just couldn't finish the thing. It was a lot. It yeah. was a lot of work. Yes. It was a lot. Um, so on New X-Men and The Invisibles, you worked with Grant Morrison. Yes. Um, what, what, what was that like? Uh, everyone asks that question. <laughs> um, it was like working on any other comic. Yeah. Um, Grant writes scripts just like any other person right. writes them. Sometimes the content is different, but the format is the same. Panel one, page he one. He didn't invite you around to the house and do a spell or something? No, no. During The Invisibles, we couldn't even find him. I remember oh. he was on his world journey, and yeah. we would get... Uh, this was back in the days of faxes, so we would get his scripts faxed in. Wow. I remember one issue, came, like it was faxed in, I want to say 
three weeks before we had to get it to the printer because we don't even know I don't even remember where he was and the trick with him is he would be someplace and be like I want this reference but this was in the days of AOL yeah. with the brow- like early early really web slow. browsing <laughs> so waiting you know it was like inch by inch on the screen <laughs> yeah. while you're waiting for the image of the reference um, maddening yes totally maddening uh, <laughs> another project I would love to work on with Grant again um, in a different uh, in a different capacity yeah. with the script there again knowing what it, I felt like I was too young to work on that project um, which really? may or may not have helped yeah I, I don't think I knew enough like looking back on the themes he was tackling and the yeah. sort of characters I think I would approach them so differently maybe not as successfully who knows yeah. but um, I would love another crack at it knowing what I do more now. world experience more world experience because yeah. Grant certainly had more world experience than I did. I was just a snotty kid in New York saying, you know, this character needs to look like this. <laughs> yeah, I would love another shot. Awesome. Uh, do you have any artists you admire? Um, oh, I have, God, artists I admire. Um, I don't even know where to begin with that. Give me um, top, top three. In comics? Any, any art. Any art of all um, So I'm just, I'll, I'll do a couple in comics. Um, first off, uh, George Perez, obviously. Yes. Um, remains my great inspiration primarily because uh, his work in the 80s and early 90s just from a design standpoint and a storytelling character standpoint is just stunning Um, Brian Hitch is probably my current favorite uh, mainstream superhero artist because he does what I cannot do which is create sort of cinema in pictures Mm -hmm. Um, I hope I'm getting his name right Ryoki Ikagami who drew Crying Freeman is probably my favorite um, manga artist. Like, yeah. that guy, if I could draw like him, I would be in absolute heaven. He's amazing. Oh, stunning, stunning, stunning work. Um, and then, God, there's so many, uh, like, actual... Uh, my favorite sort of non-comic art tends to be abstract expressionism, ironically enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big, big fan of... Uh, so that's interesting. Yes. That is it. And when I paint I'm gonna, it... I'm going to read Infinite Crisis when I go to home, yes. keeping that in mind. Uh, when I when I used to paint, um, I was very into big canvases and abstract canvases. My painting was very different than my wow. um, cartooning, um, but that tends to be my favorite uh, stuff. And then, um, just as a sort of off note, um, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll end it back because I could go on for hours. <laughs> we can, I, here, I could talk to you for hours. Uh, favorite uh, writers you admire? Oh golly, I have to say. The writers that I admire the most, the ones I wish I wrote like, the wish the way I would, uh, would be Warren Ellis and Grant Morrison, primarily because I, they have more ideas in there that they throw away on one line than I will ever have in my life, and I wish that I saw the world in the way that they did. I wish I could write because what I, like I, what I say about, for example, with Grant is and Warren too, even their their biggest failures are more ambitious than a lot of the very sort of tepid successes that we see in comics. And I would much rather read one of their, like, what the hell is this, comics. Um, And I just take away even the little nuggets of ideas than a lot of just sort of standard, you know, run-of-the-mill monthly books. So, yeah, Grant and Warren, I just think, are genius. Those are the guys I admire. Excellent. Have you ever been starstruck? Uh, I have been starstruck a few times. My favorite moment, so when I was much, much younger, I, so I'm a big fan of American soap operas. Awesome. And I remember the very first time in my early 20s uh, when I moved to New York and I met an 
actress who was on one of my the soap operas that I watched at the time, and um, I was going to do some charity work with her, and I I was I was a fool. Like I was so <laughs> excited, I can't even tell you. It could have been I could have been Madonna, and I would have said, "Get aside, Madonna!" Like Katie McLean's right here. Um, so that was actually I remember being star starstruck. Um, and then over the years. One of the things I've, uh, a real luxury of this job of, and these conventions is I end up meeting all these genre actors. Yeah. And so many of them are so nice. The, I have a great Gil Gerard story that's sort of long, but basically I was a big fan of Buck Rogers in the 25th century when I was young. And I finally met him, Gail Simone introduced him to me, and I told him a story, a childhood story about almost getting a chance to meet him meet him when I was young and I it fell through and he got a big kick out of it and so this whole weekend um, we ended up hanging out and I'm like oh my god, oh my god yeah, that's, awesome. Rogers, that's hilarious yeah. um, so it's less starstruck now than having the real pleasure of meeting these people Linda Carter was amazing that was starstruck we both cried at the end of that that was actually pretty terrific that's amazing yeah it was a perfect <laughs> celebrity meeting it literally was about 10-15 minutes exactly what I wanted I never need to see her again not that I wouldn't love it but it's sort of like we came we had our moment and we left it was everything you ever want out of meeting your idol brilliant yes uh, if you were doing this interview yes what would be the one question that would you you would want asked uh, these are really good questions um, I like to know one of the things I well I'm always really curious about with the other artists mm -hmm. are what their non-comic influences are yeah. I always think that's really interesting like and particularly how much their politics or how much their religion or even identity affects the way they do work. Um, I, about a year ago, no, excuse me, not a year ago, uh, much longer than that, I, I was invited to be a part of a, a lecture at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. to talk about identity and comics and how our self-identity affects the way we read material and create it. And I'm infinitely fascinated by that. So I would probably ask questions about identity and how um, how much of the world around us affects the, the work that they make. Unfortunately, I don't have time for that. No, no, no. That no, no, awesome no. question. Yeah, so <laughs> we'll put it in your next one. I will, I, if, if I have a chance to get to you, I'll talk to you again. I'll ask you tomorrow. Yeah, we'll talk again. <laughs> we'll talk again. Um, okay, well, if we just, uh, we have to, we're getting the wind up, so yep, we'll, just, yep, we'll yep. finish up. Um, I'd like to finish up interviews with a word association game. Oh, dear Lord. Okay. <laughs> I think too hard for these. I need to be trying to You've got to be really quick. I know. Really okay. quick. And it doesn't matter if it's one or two words, right? George Perez. Uh, a Wonder Woman. Jeanette Kahn. DC Comics. Tempest. Uh, Neil Posner. Superman. Man of Steel. Digital Comics. The Future. Coffee. Uh, I like it iced. Iced. Love. Um, expansive. Wow. Awesome. Great. Right. Thank you wow, very much. Wow, that was really good. You oh. made me give me a question. That was terrific. <laughs> Thank you. So there you go. It was for women, as, as I said, legend. Um, there was, I, seriously, we could have talked for hours and hours and hours later. It was absolutely very magnificent stuff. And so, so thank you again, um, Phil, for taking the time to talk to me and uh, also for the magnificent sketch. Uh, absolutely brilliant, brilliant stuff. And I really appreciate the, the fact that you did it for me. It was really, really cool. So next up we have Freddie Weems II. Uh, Freddie is uh, probably best known for his uh, Robin and Captain Adam work. Um, and he's a great artist and uh, underrated artist, I think. Um, and... Uh, he was just an absolute pleasure to talk to. So as I said at the start, um, 
this was uh, recorded at Oz Comic Con, so um, the sound quality is you know a bit hit and miss. Um, so bear with it, but uh, he's got some gold um, and bloody hilarious as well. So here we go with Freddie Williams. All right, this is David, and I'm here with Freddie Williams the second. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you, very, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, Freddie. Yes, my pleasure. Um, this is really exciting because actually, while you're talking to me, you're actually sketching the uh, commission I just asked for you. <laughs> Seeing the master at work, it's very cool. <laughs> See me make all my mistakes um, that, that eventually get cleaned up and then uh, forgotten about, hopefully. You know. The ink wash will cover that up. It's yes. fine. I won't hold it against you. <laughs> um, so can you, can you tell us this, uh, what your, your best known work would probably be? Uh, yeah, I'm probably best known for, um, when I first started at DC, I worked on Robin uh, for about uh, about two years off and on, um, and that was in 2005, if I, uh, 2005 and six. I did about a year's run on The Flash, uh, no pun intended on that, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and then in addition to that, uh, I did a, a book called, I wrote and illustrated a book called The DC Comics Guide to Digitally Drawing Comics, Yes. and um, so th those are the things I'm probably best known for. I'm currently working on a book called The Movement with uh, that Gil Simone is writing uh, for DC Comics, and we're on issue. I think the third issue just came out, so that's where we're at. That's awesome. I've actually, yeah, a friend of mine's got a copy of that the, the digital comics book uh, that you write. It's like his Bible. Oh, great! Yeah, it's, it's absolutely magnificent. The fact that's that I'm great. talking to you now would be, would be like, oh my god. <laughs> that's great. I've gotten some really good feedback from the, you know, from from it affecting people in a positive way. Uh, people who have said it's been useful, and that's I, that's great feedback. So I'm yeah. appreciative of that. That's awesome. Um, so what what uh, first got you into um, comic work? Um, I always had an interest in in drawing, and some of my earliest memories were of um, you know staying in from recess. Uh, do you guys have recess here? Yeah, we do. It's called the same it's thing. Okay. thing. Alright. <laughs> um, I, I would purposely stay in. I would ask my teacher if I could stay in just so I could draw uh, He-Man and Superman and all this. This is whenever I was you know obviously very young, and um, I remember drawing from. Um, like, we used uh, VHS to, to record some uh, Thundercats cartoons, and I would pause it on the screen in full poses and draw from that. That's I mean, awesome. Yeah, so, so my earliest memories and interests were of that. But what really got me, you know, uh, on the path of drawing professionally was um, in, let's see, what year would this have been? Nine, uh, I'm sorry, 87 or 88, perhaps? Um, I, uh, I saw a book called... Um, Quest. It was a graphic novel book three. It's like a big collection of Wendy Penny and Richard Penny's uh, ElfQuest book. Um, and then in the same month, I also saw Jim Lee's X-Men number 272. Wow. And so their, their work was so inspirational that, that that's what got me to want to wanna draw comics. It was like, it was just so seminal to me that it... it, it Provoked me, or uh, you know, inspired me to to want to draw. I, you know, I want to do this too. You know, yeah. and so if you looked at Wendy Penny's work, which was kind of a combination of Di Disney animation and manga, and it was at a time when manga wasn't very popular in, in the U.S. That um, if you looked at her work and then added it, if you add it to Jim Lee's work, the result is my work. You know, wow. it's, it's yep. I, I, I didn't necessarily uh, plan for it to be like that. It's just that's how it worked out. I can definitely see that in Captain Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can do, yeah. There's like a cartooniness that kind of can can be rooted back to uh, Wendy Penny and some Arthur Adams and stuff. I mean, I have other influences definitely, but um, and then some some of the superheroic 
aspects of it are very Jim Lee-esque, uh, on my best days at least. Uh. <laughs> awesome. Um, what was the first comic that you ever bought? I honestly don't remember the first one I ever bought. I mean, X-Men 272 was the, was the first book I remember buying with my own allowance, you know, awesome. with, my own, with my own funds. Um, yeah. Before that, I, I know I had some comics when I was younger, but um, we were um, rather poor whenever I was growing up, so yeah. a lot of the comics I had were kind of, you know, from uh, like the dime store, you know, or, or secondhand from my older cousins who were getting out of comics. Um, but X-Men 272 was the first one I remember, and, you know, made a big impression on me in multiple levels there. Yeah. You, know? you always remember the first one. Mine was, yeah. mine was uh, Amazing Spider-Man 289. Oh, okay. Which is, yeah, which is, uh, what was the what was the through line? What was the the, yeah, the, story? Re re the revolution? Uh, the revelation is Ned Leeds is the Hobgoblin. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still have that book, or did you oh, have to rebuy it? Oh no, I'm still got it. Even the, the, the version that you the actual that copy. Actual bought? copy. Okay, that's pretty rare. Yeah. Usually they get all tore up over time, oh, and you no. have to repurchase it. It's not in the best condition. I won't lie. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> cool. That's actually better. Yeah. That's better. That shows love that you that you had affection for it, and you reread it, looked over it, had it over and over. It meant so much to me that I just when it was revealed later that it wasn't that Hobgoblin wasn't Ned Leeds anyway, it was actually you know some other dude. I was like I was I was so outraged. It was my first it was my first ever case of nerd rage because I was like, no, this said it was Ned Leeds. So it was, yeah, it was, I wasn't happy at all. This undoes this undoes something that mattered to me. It bothers yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. You gotcha. <laughs> uh, artists you admire. Um, well, starting starting from the yeah. ones I've already mentioned, yeah. um, you know, uh, Jim Lee, uh, Wendy Penny, but uh, some bigger influences on me uh, more recently would be uh, Arthur Adams, who's who's an amazing talent, uh, J. Scott Campbell, uh, Mike Mignola, um, Frank Miller, and you know how he uses spots as blacks and uses shadows. It's I, I'm not joking. When I was working on Captain Adam, I picked up some. Um, the, the main influence was uh, David Lloyd and his uh, Beat for Vendetta work. Yeah. Because I mean, first of all, it's awesome. That's David Lloyd is awesome. Yeah. yeah. But whenever I was trying to dissect the Frank Miller stuff to kind of understand it, I'm not kidding. Um, it intimidated me so much I couldn't look at it for more than about a half an hour at a time. Wow. I just couldn't uh, kind of unravel the, the the formula of why he was doing what he was doing. His abstraction and his um, uh, contour line, like implied lines uh, and negative space, was so well done, and you could still understand the environment even though only like six or seven things had been drawn. Basically, yeah. um, I had to like metaphorically and physically back away from it. I'm not joking. That, that's wow. not big of a deal. I, I feel kind of embarrassed to admit that. You know, <laughs> it was like, I, I can't really handle this. So, yeah. um, I haven't tried to look at it, because like, there was a lot to learn. There was a big learning curve for Captain Adams. So I was trying a lot of new stuff, but um, I'll have to look at his stuff again, uh, Frank Miller's stuff again, and try to dissect it, because it's pretty amazing. Um, and then... Um, Ryan Ollie, who draws Invincible, that's one of the, the few books that I have time and make the time to to read, uh, not monthly, but you know on a regular basis. So that's about it. Those are the, the handful of guys that I pay attention to regularly. Okay, um, that's awesome. Frank Miller is yeah. Frank Miller. <laughs> uh, what would be your favorite fan moment? Let's see. I guess there is. I'm trying to remember his name. I actually wrote it down so I'd remember it. There, when I was in St. Louis earlier this year, there was a young man who's a comic book artist. Um, I cannot remember his name. It was 
Ethan or Evan or Ian, something like that, um, if he eventually hears this, I, I, I'm sorry if I get your name wrong, but um, his parents had entered, he was so nervous to meet me that his, his parents had to kind of push him to, to introduce himself and to chat with me. Um, then he was, uh, he watched all my YouTube videos, because I have a bunch of uh, how-to YouTube videos, and, um, and um, he was he was very nervous to meet me. I did a, I did a free sketch for him, and I gave him a business card. And as he was walking away, I saw him say to his parents, like it's like he showed him what he got and the glee that was in his face. He didn't know I could see him, but I was just looking at him um, like through the crowd or whatever. He was so excited, and I remember being in that situation when I was younger and meeting our you know artists and. Uh, that was a big. That was a big deal, and so I feel bad that I don't remember his name right off the top of my head. But I remember his face, like if I saw him. Um, That's amazing. But there's been a lot of other, you know, other really encouraging, pleasant experiences, like with the the DC Comics guy to digitally drawing comics, where people have told me that they had uh, uh, artists who had given up drawing and but had decided to give it a shot again and pick it up again. Um, you know, because of the DC Comics guy to digitally drawing comics. So to be um, to, to help somebody rekindle their love for that is, um, you know, there's it's it's almost surreal to you know like because I'm just I'm just a guy who wrote that book. Yeah, you know what I mean. But yeah. I've had from their accounts a big impact on them, and that feels fantastic. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. Have you ever been starstruck? I have. Um, yeah, a couple times. I I've, I've met um, Jim Lee for the first time in quotes about four times. Like I meet him, and we don't really have much of a. We haven't had much of an interaction, so it's like a very brief. You know, he'll say nice to meet you, so I know that you know. But uh, it's not like um, we, we've had lunch together or anything like that. But just every time that's happened, I felt starstruck. Um, aside from that, I, I'm very in, in connection with the human nature of being an artist and um, you know, it's, it's very peer-to-peer -peer. even if I know that they're much higher than me on the totem pole or something like that I, I, I'm very uh, cognizant of they're just you know, they're, they're a guy like me and they're going through similar things or they have already gone through what I'm going through and stuff so I don't tend to get starstruck too much uh, Jim Lee and then Wilson Picasso was another one that I kind of didn't know what to say and I was trying to say natural like you know, I don't know really how to fake that <laughs> so, yeah, those two guys, I guess. Oh, and of course when I met you. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, <laughs> that's going to be the sandbar. <laughs> uh, what, would be, what would you be doing if you weren't uh, a comic penciler? I would hope, if, if, I would, if I disconnected from all artwork, like if I just never got into any artwork, because my answer would be like I would try to be in animation or doing a comic strip nice. or, you know, commercial art or something. But um, if it was none of that at all, That's really awesome though. Thanks. Yeah. 
so it's actually teaching the skills that you put into your book. Yeah, um, yeah. I would love. I have I have ideas for at least three more how-to projects wow. in my mind that I keep making notes on and stuff. But I just don't. I, I just haven't had the time. Um, I really want to do that, and I talk about them in the occasional YouTube videos and in interviews and stuff. And people ask me like, "What do you think about with that other thing?" And um, I honestly don't know. I, I hope to someday, but I'm just not sure really. If you were doing this interview, what would be the one question that you would want asked? <laughs> the question you just asked. Is really? The question, no. <laughs> that would have been a, 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 probably the best answer. I should have said yes. But, um, actually, you've asked some really good questions. Like the, because the typical ones I get, I, I do sometimes get like the, 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 my primary influences um, and that sort of thing and like how, how I break, broke in. That's the other really typical one. But um, the favorite fan moment, that's one that I had never been asked. That's actually a really good question that I'm glad you asked. Um, oh, boy. I honestly am stumped. Okay, we'll come back to it. Okay, cool. Right. I like to do um, a bit of word association. Okay, is this free association? Free association. Just... Oh, free. just say whatever you want that comes to your head, doesn't matter what it is. Okay. Okay, you ready? Every answer will be burrito or chimichanga or taco because I'm actually kind of hungry. No, okay, all right. Favorite food? <laughs> so, Pizza. All right. Um, okay, DC. Marvel. Captain Adam. I guess Dr. Manhattan, sorry, I, my brain, my, my higher brain functions are being occupied. That's by an awesome guy. answer. Yeah. Uh, Robin. Batman. Home. Uh, Missouri. Coffee. Tea. Love. Uh, good? Done. Good? Okay. <laughs> are you good? <laughs> I, um, they were good answers. Okay, cool. And none of them were burrito. <laughs> <laughs> Not even the first one, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very, very much for your time, Freddie. It's an absolute pleasure. And to see my drawing come to life. This is awesome stuff. I, this is um, something that I call scribble sketching. Yep. It's, it's just you, you you give yourself permission to draw like a hundred bad lines, a hundred yep. wrong lines, yep. um, knowing that you'll, in that in the mix, you'll see the correct line, and then you just erase and kind of draw out those good lines, and um, that's how you get the, the correct ones. You just lay down a forest, and then you eventually find a tree that you want. You know? That sounds very familiar. Is that in one of your videos? Because I've watched all your YouTube videos. The forest, <laughs> the forest, and then you know, laying down a forest and then finding the tree, that's brand new. That's yeah. actually, the, this is the first time I've ever said that. You heard it here but, first. <laughs> but the scribble sketching explanation, other than that, is something, yeah, I've talked yeah. about a few times. Whatever, when I first saw Jim Lee's work, I was looking at Scott Williams' amazing embellishment and inks um, on top of it, and it was just so uh, clean that I... I felt like I needed to draw the right line the first time, each, you know, every piece that I worked on. So I was like drawing the incorrect line, like the side of the face. I would carve into the paper with this strong, confident line that was really wrong, and it would ruin the, the artwork. It would ruin the paper, so I couldn't even erase it anymore. Um, and I just didn't understand that that you build up to that final endpoint because this this was in the late '80s, early '90s, where the the internet wasn't easily accessible to a guy like me, you know, right. uh, by, for most people, in fact. So um, uh, when I picked up the How to Draw Comics, the Marvel Way book, there's a page, I can't remember what page number it is, but it's um, a picture that Sal, I think it's Sal Buscema, who yeah. did, did the art, um, he, he did a scribble, he didn't call it scribble sketching, I don't know what he called it, probably scumble or something, um, that he drew a four, and it's like, uh, you're looking at his back lap, 
lateral and his outside of his hip and stuff. It's, it, I, I can picture the, the pose, but um, and he does it in this really controlled scribble throughout it, and um, that's what it was like. That's what really spoke to me, and that was the only page he did that on. The rest of it was very clean shape uh, structure drawings. Yeah, but um, that was what I wanted to work with. And, and since then, I see that that's a very popular, common way. Like uh, keyframe animators um, for Disney and stuff, they'll, they'll sketch that way. Like their keyframes are incredibly messy, very very smudged and yeah. torn paper and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, which which is awesome, you know. Yeah. Well, Freddie, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'll come back and and uh, maybe ask the same question again. Maybe if, if you've got something for me, give me give me a little bit of time to think about it. Um, but that in itself was a very good question. But it's it's been my pleasure. I'm glad that you were able to come over and hang out. And, yeah, this is awesome. I'm, I'm behind the counter. I look I look important. It's very cool. <laughs> isn't it? Like, I think it's this side. Is it different? But, but you know, on this side of the table, it is different. That was Freddie Williams, absolute legend. Check out his uh, his sites. I'll have uh, links to his YouTube page that he mentioned uh, on the website as well. And uh, it's a must for any aspiring artist uh, to check out his stuff. Yeah, and if you want to check out his most recent comic work, check out DC's The Movement. Yeah. Written by Gail Simone. With Gail, yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, next up we have Australia's own Paul Mason, uh, the writer and artist behind The Soldier Legacy. Also, on the Australian, as you'll find out, on the Australian team for uh, for Taekwondo, he's just a, he's just an all-around awesome dude, and uh, it was a pleasure to talk to him finally. He had a lot of fun doing the interview, which, as you'll see. Okay, it's David, and I'm here with Paul Mason. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Australian zone. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I had to cue in and say something there, but yes, I am here. Thanks. And David is here too. We are both here at Oz Comic Con. Um, thanks to the, to the great people at Oz Comic Con for allowing this interview. Uh, so, Paul, you are best known for the Sol- Soldier Legacy? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm best known, but I'm n- notoriously known for it, I guess is probably a better word. I actually prefer notorious, actually. I should have said that. <laughs> uh, that's actually, it's, it's out from Black House Comics. Um, yes. Can you tell us how, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about Soldier Legacy? Yeah, sure. I was in uni. Uh, I did a Bachelor of Animation at uh, Queensland College of Arts at Griffith Uni. And uh, for my honours year, I wanted to look at, uh, you know, comic books and... Uh, you know, my, what, who are my, my influential comic, comic uh, creators? And uh, I started looking at Stanley and Jack Kirby's work. And there was a lot of stuff in then Jack Kirby's work that I really appealed to me. I wanted to do my own sort of hero book. I was a big fan of their Captain America stuff and the Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. Uh, just, I don't know, something about it appealed to me. It was just a bunch of grunts, no superpowers. Um, there's a bit of war history in there, but essentially it was a superhero book without powers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, cool. Wahoo and all that sort of business. Yeah. My studio work, I wanted to do something that would kind of touch on that aspect of it, the fun, you know, the fun aspects of it, but have some sort of Australian appeal to it, you know, Australian history, not, not beat the kid over the head with it, but if they Googled the names and places or something, they'd learn something from it, you know what I mean? When I was looking at what an Aussie hero would be, essentially we look up to two things in our in our myths. Uh, yeah. One is the sporting heroes, uh, and the other was that sort of that Anzac tradition. Mm-hmm. When I started to read a bit of the military history, I wanted to do uh, you know something that would just be straightforward to me and not too complicated in terms of the campaigns and and uh, the the story of the Ninth Division AIF in New Guinea oh. really appealed to me not only because of the the, the 
sacrifices and the certain people that the, the book talked about, but also just the setting. It was it was quite different to say. Uh, the European theatre. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, you, you, you see that often enough in, in film and in uh, comic yeah, books yeah. and television and that sort of thing. But yeah, you very rarely see that sort of the Pacific theatre touched on. Um, there's a good movie, Kokoda, they did a couple of years ago. Um, the, the, the TV series uh, Pacific touched on the American sort of Guadalcanal. Um, same kind of flavour or feel uh, for... for you know, that sort of campaign and those sort of settings. And I thought it'd be cool to kind of do that. Plus it touched on the marsh of the Phantom in that yep. regard. So that, that was it. I started as a self-publisher. Luckily enough, I uh, picked up my Lighthouse. So. It's very exciting that uh, The Soldier Legacy was featured in a nationally televised commercial campaign for Yui Insurance. Uh, yes. Very prominently featured. I was, I was excited. I don't know about anybody else, but... Uh, uh, it was a nice little moment to have that kind of exposure early on. And I hadn't been with Black House for that long, actually, when, when the opportunity arose. It was self-publishing, and I was getting it printed through uh, Jeffrey's Printing, which was an offshoot of, uh, well, the, you know, they're the guys that run Black House Comics. Oh, OK. Yeah, so everything that they make is all Australian-made, 100%. That's awesome. I'm really happy with that. And they said, hey, because they were doing the Sherlock Holmes series for the news agents, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And um, Jason Pollock's and Jan Scherpenhaus' Twilight Age and um, I know Jason Franks was getting their stuff printed through their Kagamono at the time yep. uh, and they said what do you think about doing Soldier Legacy with us? And I said, yeah, that, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, so and then uh, they were approached by um, I think uh, Yui Filmsmith did the commercial they said Look, we're all looking for this Aussie sort of uh, comic book hero and um, they were looking between that and another prominent book and they um, and ended up rolling with mine, which I was, you know, that, that book actually has gone on to, to explode in the comic scene, so... Uh, the other book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing really well. Um, the Deep. I'll oh, give them a plug. Oh, the Deep. Oh, so Tom Taylor's The Deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, they've they got the, the cartoon series and, and yeah, yeah. Uh, overseas exposure and uh, distribution of gangbusters, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, to, I mean all, due, all due respect to The Deep, it is awesome. I, I do love it. But Soldier Legacy is definitely more the Aussie sort of look that they were going for, I think. So I think they made the better choice. I, I appreciate that, that comment. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think, too, it's vision, from a visual perspective, they like the mask. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It gave them a little bit of a story to go along with yeah. uh, the campaign that they were, yeah. they were running at the time. It works. It was nice. And as I said, I guess the one downfall was that because the book hadn't been out for very long, people didn't realise that it was an offshoot of an actual comic. Uh-huh. You know, so... Um, whether that I do though I did have someone out of the blue mention it today it's, it's 2013 the ad hasn't been on TV for about a year or two and he said yeah first time I saw it was in that commercial and I hunted it out and it's I'm like wow. yeah and I got to do a lot of concept art for the ad just in terms of like you know they want to know what the soldier looked like I was working on issue 3 at the time so I sent them the early pages of that so they get an idea of what the mask looks like without the hat on yeah awesome stuff so let's talk about your uh your work with um, Andre Bergen? Yeah, um, yeah, so you yeah. Did, you did a sketch for uh, Who Was Killing the Great Case of Veropa? Well, that, that was kind of cool because, yeah. uh, and Andre's, i got to admit, he was very patient with me because he, he, he touched base with me probably about a year or so ago and 
he was doing a anthology book based on his a follow up to his novel Tobacco Stained Mountain Goat. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And he wanted me to do a, a little short story for it. I was so flat out I couldn't do it. Right. Can't remember the specific reasons behind why I couldn't get to it, but yeah. there was just always another deadline that was popping up. Yeah. But he kept me in mind for this book. He said, look, I just want a pin-up. It's a, it's a riff on the Jack Kirby cover. And as soon as he said Jack Kirby, I'm like, oh, yeah. there it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was a lot of fun to do. And I'm, I'm very appreciative of the fact that Andre's... Uh, pushes uh, his artists the way that he does, considering that he wrote this, what, 400-page book all by himself uh, with many, many references. And in actual fact, I believe in one scene in the book where they're talking about old heroes, uh, the soldier gets a mention as one of the heroes in his universe. So I was kind of like, oh, that's awesome. It is awesome. Uh, where's my royalties, Andre? So, no kidding. I'm, I'm an absolute, absolutely huge fan of Andre Berger. We actually... <laughs> I, I actually listened to yeah, that show. And it was and very... Uh, I'm, I'm going to praise your show because it was... That's the one reason why I'm enjoying talking to you now is that uh, you do a lot of research and your stuff and you're very thorough. And, uh, yeah, it's not just a, a fanboy gushing. You know, it's just very, I like the reviews. Oh, thank you very much. said like are you going away for your trip or how's your karate going or something like that yeah I don't mind it's, 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 it's the fact that they care not many people really care it's my fourth world championship I, I did train on another team political reasons I think uh, they put, like we pulled out at the end of it but uh, that was about three years ago I think the last world titles was 07 I got bronze uh, so I, uh, I'm, looking to, I'm looking to go better yeah, originally South Korea, but uh, of course Kim Jong Il uh, or Kim Jong Un or whatever the, the new guy is, he was uh, jumping up and down, and uh, yeah. a few people got cold feet and decided to move the event. So that's kind of fair enough. Still, so the Australian, I mean, the Australian team, that gives it. Uh, thank, thank. You. I'm doing the World Championships in the UK, but before that, I've got the Human Fly story coming out at San Diego Comic Con. So yeah. I wanted to be there to see it. Yeah. You know, it might not be, might not be a, a DC book, but it's it's or a Marvel book but it's a, a it's a um, you know the guys are doing the movie for the human fly uh, it should be awesome um, it's a really funny story because it's based on a real life dude himself and uh, the anthology book has, has a lot of guys including the original um, uh, artists and a couple of the original artists that worked on the human fly series for Marvel back in the 70s so it's kind of something I wanted to be over there and see and hang with my good mate Chris Fuguero and you know he's got some things in the pipeline so it would be a lot of fun. Well, I like to think that uh, my contribution to the your going away fund would result in uh, like a hot dog or something. <laughs> <laughs> Sit in America, you're eating a hot dog. Think of me. 
I will, I will. Or if I'm eating uh, mushy peas in London uh, and fish and chips. Bangers and mash. Bangers and mash. Yeah, whatever the weird concoctions they serve in their... Uh, pork pie. Pork, pork pie, yep. I don't know how. Alright, so I'll just finish up with some nice easy ones. Sure. Artists you admire. We've already said Kirby. Well, Jack Kirby, yeah. Greg Capullo, John Romita Jr. Those are the big three. But really, it's the work ethic of, of Kirby, uh, Capullo, and, and uh, John Romita Jr. Because, like, you know, he has every right to be the most arrogant person you yeah. could possibly meet, but he's not. Yeah. And I've met him in person, and I can assure you, he is one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, guys work hard for their family, they're polite to people, and that, those are the big things that I tried to pick up uh, when I first started doing this nonsense was work hard, be polite, you know. Okay, now this, this question sometimes throws people, right? Okay. Just one year advance. All right. If you were doing this interview, yes. what would be the one question that you wanted asked? Oh, yeah, that does throw people. I thought I would be prepared for that one, but I'm not. I don't know, man. Like, I'm just thankful for the interview in the first place, hey, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't know what I, or, I mean, a lot of the interviews that I do, we talk about, you know, the soldier stuff or, or, or what influences me. I guess what's really nice is that you've, you've read the books to begin with. So you're familiar with it. You're familiar with the Taekwondo stuff, yeah. which I appreciated. You know, like, uh, what can I say, man? Like, uh, I, no, you got me. I got you. Yeah, you got me big time. I don't know what. <laughs> you, you, it is a good question because because on one uh, on the one hand, you, you pretty much asked like the, the the questions like about the, the soldier book and the and the comic book and stuff. And, but on the other hand, if I if I come up with a question in my head it's kind of like oh what a wanker he was ex- hoping that uh, someone would ask him uh, that question to talk about himself some more you know what I mean <laughs> alright I always like to finish up interviews with a word association game oh yeah I love these games first thing the pause into your head yeah I come out like a psycho here we go Black House Comics Jason Franks uh, nice guy Brisbane uh, where I live digital comics digital comics uh, pull my finger out and do it yeah <laughs> Coffee. Coffee. Don't drink it. Love. Uh, yeah, I guess. I do. <laughs> Family, friends. <laughs> well, thank, thank you very much, Paul. That was absolutely awesome. Thank um, you, David. I appreciate it. And that was Paul. What a champion. A good all, good all round Aussie bloke. <laughs> what a champion. And I just feel proud that I've contributed to his, uh, his efforts to compete for Australia. Uh, by buying some of his stuff and if he has another one of those sales take advantage and uh, buy some stuff off him it's awesome work and you're helping support him kick butt for Australia go Paul coming up next coming soon okay so in Australian cinemas July 25th we get The Wolverine I gotta say this one actually looks doesn't look bad at all it looks I think it looks awesome like like it could be quite good yep I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sort of more enthusiastic about it than I was when it was first announced. Yeah, that's true. I like that um, Hugh Jackman seems to be very attached to that facial hair. He's like, <laughs> he wears it all the time, any well, whether it's Wolverine or not. Well, he's, he's got to keep it at the moment because he's also doing Days of Future Past, starring Wolverine. <laughs> so I think he's just gone, and they're actually shooting that at the moment, so I think he's just gone, look, I've grown, the, grown it anyway, might as well just keep it for yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> you know. A own Hugh Jackman. Uh, we also get uh, two B-movies, and I don't mean because they're terrible. They start with B. Behind the Candelabra. 
and Byzantium. <laughs> What's behind the candelabra? Behind the candelabra is actually a, it was actually a fire pick. Yeah, it's a Liberace. Yeah, people have been raving about it. Who would have ever picked Michael Douglas for Liberace? But you know, oh yeah, he pulls it off. He pulls it off really well from looks of things. So. And uh, Byzantium is uh, Neil Jordan's uh, latest film. He returns to the world of vampires. It, it deals with a mother and daughter vampire team who um, you know, struggle to survive in the world about uh, getting caught and killed, I suppose. Um, um, yeah, I'm a bit uh, over vampires, but I like Neil Jordan as a director. So I like Neil I'm Jordan too. To check it out. Okay, and then uh, the following week on August 1st, we get The World's End, uh, which is the final in the Cornetto trilogy with... Uh, Simon Pig. Simon Pig. Nick, Nick Frost. Frost. And right. Friends. The, and the others. <laughs> <laughs> I'd prefer to see that than that other World's End movie, but I've forgotten the name of. This, this, is, is, the this is the end. Yeah. Mm. yeah. No, no, I actually prefer to see this is the end, because it anyway. That's cool. <laughs> and uh, and uh, as I'm sure uh, everybody who entered our competition has been waiting for, the winner of our competition. The winner. The, you, <laughs> the winner is you. So we've already put uh, all the names in the hat and uh, we're drawing out the winner uh, before the episode. The NCP sorting hat. The NCP sorting hat, which is a shame because I like the crackle, the crackly noise that it makes. But anyway, um, and the winner is Martin Abbott from the United States, Pennsylvania, in fact. Congratulations. Well done, Martin. Well done, Martin. So uh, if you can please send me uh, your full address or like some sort of postal address, that's cool. And uh, they'll be on their way. Care of the Pentagon or something, you know. So yeah, so congratulations, Martin, and uh, thank you for everybody else uh, who entered. So to finish up, you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or you can post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. Or you can tweet us at at nerdculturecast. Or you can leave a comment on any post on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com. And don't forget you can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. But more importantly, don't forget that we are Amazon affiliates. Yay. So there is a widget on our website that you can buy things through Amazon. It doesn't cost you any extra, uh, but we get a cut. We get a slice of the profits. All right. That's right. Give us money. It's only 3%, but hey, that's cool. No, no, <laughs> three, money down. Does <laughs> 3% constitute a slice? It's a, well, it's a very thin... It's a sliver. Sort of, it's like a Weight Watchers slice. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, we'll take it. I like an easy slice. I got a big chicken burger out of it last time. I'm cool with that. No, I'm kidding. What now? <laughs> where's our bit of burger? Last, last month, we, we made $2.50. Yeah, where's my... 75 cents. I'm only kidding. I didn't, I didn't buy a burger. I put it into the kitty for the the uh, end of year extravaganza. Yeah, right. we'll, we'll be going to Footscray. It goes towards... <laughs> <laughs> no, it goes towards the tiny teddies. All right. <laughs> okay, so that's it for episode 55. I hope you enjoyed it, because we certainly did. Well, at least I did. I can't speak for the others. They look kind of bored, actually. <laughs> no. no, it was good stuff. No, I'm kidding. That's it for me and the crew, Richo. And my two-man Jaeger team with Luke! Suddenly the, the idea of cultivating the world in a giant robot doesn't quite seem as palpable as it once did. Uh, you know you'd do it. You'd, you know you you'd, would. You'd, you'd stop around in a big robot beating up monsters. Just for yeah, I'm a solo guy, thank you very much. You, you. A solo man. <laughs> Slam it down for you keep <laughs> I was waiting for someone to say it. And Crystal. And me. And Crystal. <laughs> At. <laughs> www. Nerdcontrapodcast.com <laughs> Crystal Leave me alone <laughs> Forward slash Crystal <laughs> Bye Bye bye
Hi, this is Paul Mason. You're listening to Nerd Culture Podcast. Uh, hi, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, so you're listening to uh, Nerd Culture, Nerd Culture Podcast. Uh, uh, this, um, uh, yo, this is uh, yo, this is Rocky Balboa. Uh, you're listening to uh, what are we listening to? I'm sorry, Adrian. You know, I'm a little punchy. You know, uh, Nerd Culture Podcast. Yeah, and I'll tell you about Tyson. Uh, hi, uh, yes, hi, uh, you listen to, uh, uh, this is my, uh, uh, my, yeah, get out, yeah, I know, uh, my manager's, t- he's, my manager's in my ear, what? What, I, f- yeah, I'll take you, fool, yeah, oh, okay, sorry, uh, this is Mike Tyson, uh, and you're, uh, you're listening to Nerd Pussy Club Podcast, it's ludicrous.